Guys, we're on the home stretch for season two, March 19th. Put it in your calendar. That will be the first episode of season two of Depolarize. And March 12th, one week earlier, we will have an episode introducing my new co-host, Ellen Morrow. You can also get to know her later this week as she'll be on the Bad Christian podcast talking about pro-life questions, which is her area of sort of greatest political interest and passion. Since these days I have all these ideas that I'm working on, mostly for new podcast series, either alone or with collaborators, I've started a simple email list for those who want to stay informed. Go to dancokewords.com to sign up if you want to be on that email list. I promise I won't spam you. Today's episode was recorded a few weeks ago at the Bad Christian Conference in Nashville. It's my first ever live episode, which is fun, and we'll just jump right in with Jonathan Merritt. So I know the download numbers of Bad Christian and Depolarized, so I'm confident that at least 12 of you listen to my show. If we're, just, if we're just playing the numbers here. Uh, Jonathan Merritt is an author of three books, fourth one coming out. He's a journalist. He's written innumerable articles. I think 3,000 is listed on your website. Atlantic, The Week, Religious News Service, USA Today, Washington Post, Christianity Today. This is a live episode that's going up before season two of Depolarized, and that whole season is focused around the 81% of white evangelicals who voted for Trump statistic and all the questions that that brings up. So I thought, what better way to kind of lead into that season than a chat about this with someone who knows a whole lot about this demographic, much more than I know. My first question for you, Jonathan. In a recent piece, you wrote the following. We've undoubtedly entered a moment during which partisan politics have infiltrated the church to agree not witnessed since the emergence of the moral majority in the 1970s. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, I think you can sort of explain that two different ways. One, you can look at history. So historically, uh, we're in a, a moment where, where partisan politics and particularly white evangelicalism are intertwined to a greater extent than they have been in some time. And that you can almost just look at uh, by sort of tracing the presidency. So the religious right uh, comes uh, to be largely during the presidency of Jimmy Carter. It, it registers, you know, you have people being registered to vote with the moral, rise of the moral majority and Ronald Reagan comes into power. You have uh, 12 years of... Uh, evangelical leaders who are in the Oval Office, who are showing up on Larry King Live, these things were were really unprecedented, except for in the 1920s when you have prohibition. Evangelicals were largely not mobilized in the public square. That shifted, particularly during the Clinton years, because they were at odds. There was a slight revival during the the Bush presidency. You know, he, he established the, the Office of Faith-Based and religious partnerships. And then, of course, Barack Obama had an approach. Uh, uh, he highly valued faith, but in a more of a pluralistic sense. So this is the first time that you have kind of an almost a Reagan-esque arrangement uh, between Washington and kind of middle America evangelicalism. I think the other thing you have to look at is the zeitgeist, that the zeitgeist, uh, particularly among evangelicals, is as similar now to the 1970s as it has been. You'll remember 
most of you probably were not alive in the early 1970s, but uh, we had the, the American Cultural Revolution, which was really a revolution made up of tiny revolutions. You had the feminist revolution, the environmental revolution, the anti-war revolution, the civil rights, which was in particular a really big one, uh, the civil rights uh, revolution, you had the sexual revolution of the 1960s, all of which sort of culminated uh, into this like force that that made evangelicals feel like the world was leaving them behind, or or at least that the kind of world that they knew was slipping through their fingers. And that's largely similar to the way that many evangelicals today feel. Totally. Uh, I would say in some ways it's been, um, it's been resurrected by the election of of uh, an African American president. If you look at the Cultural Revolution, they would, you know, I think a lot of evangelicals, the way that they tell the history is, is that it was it was really about abortion and Roe v. Wade. But a lot of good work has been done to show it was largely a a reaction to the civil rights movement. And school I think, segregation, Bob Jones University, et cetera. And I think race is probably still a, a large part of this. Of course, we're seeing it now with the rise of of, of white supremacy. That's interesting. So an example of this partisan politics infiltrating the church. Recently, there's this Texas megachurch pastor. His name is Robert Jeffress. Anybody know who that guy is? A few of you. Wow, this is probably going over people's heads. Sorry about that. He took, he, he, he pastors a megachurch in Texas, and he took 15 minutes out of his sermon on Sunday morning to interview Sean Hannity, promoting this film that Hannity had executive produced. What kind of a backlash did this provoke within the Christian community? That's my empirical question. And then how do you respond to that whole thing? Well, it did, it did get some backlash. Uh, now, of course, when you say the Christian community, that sort of begs who right. you're talking about, right? So there, there, there are lots of different Christian communities, and there were some uh, versions of Christianity that were, by and large, upset by that. They were upset because, A, it, it, there's a real hypersensitivity right now to kind of the children of the religious right, who anytime there there feels like a blurring of lines between um, partisan politics and kind of that sacred space of church, people get a little antsy. And so there was some of that just kind of generalized anxiety about it. I think there were other people who were who were justifiably upset because he was there to promote a film. Uh, it's right. a film with a partisan political message. And so uh, essentially, uh, a, a sacred space that is devoted to worship was diverted uh, for for 15 minutes to promote uh, a feature film with a partisan political message. And some people felt like that was somehow a, a violation of, of what that space and that time should be used for. So that did upset yeah. people. Now, the interesting thing is it's not if you know much about Robert Jeffress, it's like the least controversial thing he's ever done. I mean, yeah. this guy, the, the irony of the whole thing is he's interviewing Sean Hannity, who is Roman Catholic. And this is a guy who has said that Roman Catholicism is a, um, a, a brilliant plan that was devised by the devil, that it's a Babylonian uh, cult that sort right. of uh, made its way into modern society. I Raise mean, your hand if you grew up taught to ask people, oh, are you Catholic or are you a Christian? That's like almost half the room. That's me too, yeah. Right. Exactly. So I'm, I'm familiar with that view of Jefferson's. Please continue. Yeah, so I, all, all that to say, uh, if, you, if you Google Robert Jeffress, you're going to find things that are far more outlandish than right. him. I mean, he's on the payroll of Fox News. He's a Fox News political contributor. Uh, so... 
this is not really that yeah. in compared to the rest of his career as a pastor slash whatever he is. Uh, it's not really that concerning to me. Okay, well then, so what is concerning to you? Not necessarily just Jeffress, but sort of that contingent of evangelical pastors who have come around Donald Trump. Um, what is most concerning about that uh, blending of, of church and state or church and one particular party? Gosh, what is most concerning? Uh that's a that's it's an like, embarrassment you, of riches here. How do you here, pick yeah. one? I don't know. There's a lot of there's 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 kind of like your the the low hanging fruit, which is that we have given the um, we've we've created an illusion that in order to follow Jesus, you have to fill in the blank, and there and everything that you fill in the blank with in terms of that kind of the political answers to that question are really really bad and they alienate a lot of people. And I think there are a lot of people out there that say, if this is what following Jesus means, if following Jesus means being um, Republican nationalistic, then, then that's not what I, what I want to do. And so I think what you're having is, is you're having a, a large number of people within the church who are defecting, and you have a large number of people outside of the church who don't want anything to do with it. So you're sort of chasing people from both directions, which I think will create a, a bit of a crisis. In some ways, you know, I wrote a book about this and not years ago um, about the culture wars and what was what was and it's interesting reading it now in, in retrospect. But really, we've we have reached the logical ends of the religious right experiment. So anyone with enough sense to you know come inside from the rain should be able to have sort of seen what was happening and and say if you follow this to its end, you, you get Donald Trump. Uh, you get Roy Moore, you get Robert Jeffress, you get Paula White, you get Johnny Moore. These are, these are not, they're not really all that surprising. They are disconcerting, but they shouldn't really be surprising for anyone who's paying attention. Yeah. On a previous Depolarized episode, Robert Jones from Public Religion Research Institute talks about, uh, who's the 700 Club guy? Pat Robertson? And how Pat Robertson said, you know, Bill Clinton is turning the White House into the Playboy Mansion. And then when Trump came on his show during the election, he says, Mr. Trump, you inspire us. And I mean, the, the behavioral difference between the two candidates, <laughs> the two men is uh, indiscernible, maybe we might say, charitably. Um, but these aren't the only evangelicals in America right now. And, and one of the things that we're doing with the show is the first two episodes are going to focus on what we call the 19% white evangelicals who did not vote for Trump. Um, this is a contingent that very much exists, but are not sort of sought after in the press very often. Uh, they don't have as many megaphones. They don't make for as good of news copy, right? You have your finger to the pulse uh, in, in this world. What are some characteristics of this group of people who remain identified evangelicals, but are pushing back against sort of the... Trump love? Well, there, it's not monolithic, right? So you have Christians who are progressive, and they make up a contingency, right? And, that's, and that is sort of um, uninteresting. Like, did anybody think Jim Wallace was going to, like, right. cheerlead for the Republican? It's just sure. not. I mean, it's like, what? That's not interesting. What is interesting is when you have a fracturing 
within the conservative subset of evangelicals, and that's what we're seeing. We've, we have seen, we've seen a number of fractures within evangelicalism at large in the last 15 years. One of the biggest ones started out with kind of the left-right divide, the emergence of kind of a sojourners-esque evangelicalism, a social justice, right? Everybody in the early 2000s, it's all, it was all social justice and social gospel and this kind of revival of that conversation. In 2008, all anyone ever wanted columnists like me to write about was the generational divides. It was all right. young evangelicals. It wasn't left, it was young evangelicals, young evangelicals, young evangelicals. Now you have a pro-Trump, anti-Trump evangelical split that's happening within the conservative subset. So you have a person like Jack Graham, who's a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, who serves on uh, President Trump's advisory council, and then you have a person like Russell Moore who heads up the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, who was a, uh, a vehement um, opponent to Trump. And so I think that's what's, what's really fascinating, is that fracture that is transcending uh, the left-right divide and even the older, younger divide, and is really penetrating into that kind of that 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 rigid conservative right flank of evangelicalism, and that I think is a crisis for for that entire flank. You know, the 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 phrase that sort of animated the the mid to late '90s was character counts. You mentioned Robert Jones, uh, Public Religion Research Institute did an interesting study. In 2011, 30% of white evangelicals said that a, a presidential candidate who had committed immor immoral acts could still do his or her job. 30% said yes to that. Said yes. That number has risen to over 70%. White evangelicals are now the, the most likely demographic in America to say that a, a candidate who is immoral can still do their job. This is a massive flip-flop. I mean, statistically speaking, in six years, is a massive flip-flop. And I think that puts the movement evangelicalism, conservative evangelicalism, it, it, it puts them at the front end of a fork in the road where they have to decide, did character really count back when you said it did or not? If it did count and it does count, then it's time to clean house. If it never counted, then you, you have to make robust and intelligent arguments for why political pragmatism is uh, reconcilable with the Christian faith, and then you have a lot of repenting to do. Because you really ruined, you know, I wrote an article for The Atlantic called um, Trump Supporting Evangelicals, O Bill Clinton, an Apology. And, and if, if, if Trump is an acceptable candidate, then I think it stands to reason that there are a whole lot of folks out there from the James Dobsons to the Tony Perkins to the Jerry Falwell Juniors that really owe a person like Bill Clinton an apology because it was, it was, the, it was the assassination that happened to a person like that. And in many ways, whether you, can, you could argue that he deserved it, just as some would argue Trump deserves it, that he did commit... Um, some really disconcerting acts as president of the United States. But if what you're saying is, is that Trump is acceptable, then what does that say about the last 10, 15, 20 years of political engagement within the movement? It seems to me that the, the Clinton-Trump comparison is such fertile ground for like psychology, <laughs> social psychology and group psychology, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because you know this is depolarized, so let's critique the left as well. Um, there have been some really great articles, too, that say 
feminists failed the left in the 90s with the Clintons. I mean, they really said, get behind this guy, do the pragmatic thing. And then when those same people, like people like Gloria Steinem, like huge all-stars of the feminist movement of the 70s, uh, did that. And they said, no, we're going to be pragmatists because it's better to support an immoral, you know, woman-abusing guy than it is to get a Republican. And now they are doing some soul-searching. And it, it feels like that same, it's still Clinton Trump is showing the same thing on the right of like, I mean, I think James Dobson is a man that I had actually a fair amount of respect for considering other folks of his ilk when I was growing up. I think he was, had some better ideas. I, I can't take him seriously unless he issues some sort of a public apology. I mean, it, it, it's an about face. Well, well, I mean, to be fair, on, on the James Dobson point, I couldn't take James Dobson seriously if I read like two of his books from the 1990s that promote physical abuse among children and conversion therapy sure, and all sure. kinds of insanity. But he's become even more insane Right, and that's, that is, that's, I think, the alarming thing for me, is that there are all these people that, if you'd asked me in 2007, I would say, these people are crazy. And their current version of themselves makes the previous version of themselves look rational. And, and I think that's something that has to be named, that we've entered into kind of this, this new realm of, insanity uh, and cognitive dissonance. It's not just an ad hominem attack, like cognitive dissonance within the movement. And I don't think that, that a movement can sustain that. Of course we're seeing the fractures, but I think we'll see it fracture even further. So what this all makes me think of, so it's interesting that you brought up kind of the public element of, you know, these guys are on the record, right? They have, they made these claims about Clinton. They made opposite claims about Trump. There's, there's an obvious cognitive dissonance. Where I tend to go is the individual level. And if you guys listen to the show, uh, which again is a small percentage of you, uh, you know I talk about Jonathan Haidt a lot in his book, The Righteous Mind, his, his theory, Moral Foundations Theory. Are you familiar with that? So very, very brief sketch. His view is that when we present reasons for our belief, so if Jonathan asked me, Dan, why do you vote Democrat? I give him a bunch of reasons. I tend to think that those are the reasons that I do it. Jonathan Haidt says, no. The reason you vote Democrat is you lean Democrat in a way that is mostly unconscious. And then what your brain does, your inner lawyer, is it presents arguments that justify your leanings. Now, leanings can change. Some of your leanings are the result of your own choices. Some of them are not. Nature and nurture and your own choices all play in. And so I think about that, that poll from PRRI, which is, comes up on this next season a bunch too. It, it never was either. It's, not, it's neither that those people six years ago in 2011 or seven years ago, it's neither true that then they really knew that they could never vote for an immoral candidate, nor is it true that now they really know that they can. That's like third down the line. They have a tribe, they have a family and a group of people that they identify with, and that group does things and then that gives them a permission structure to do the same things. And then a pollster asks them, oh, hey, by the way, you white evangelical Southern Christian, is it okay for a public official to do something wrong? And then depending on what's going on in their tribe, they answer the question. So the question comes sort of logically at the end. 
Um, do you agree with that assessment, first of all? I think so. Okay. I think so. so I, then, think, I think I'm following you, yes. Okay. So my question for you is, if that's true, as someone, just an average person sort of following the news, just even at a basic level, and thinking about this, especially those of us who come from that community, which I know is a lot of people in here today, what can we do at an individual level to keep ourselves from doing that same thing, from just answering questions the way that anybody in our tribe would answer them because the moment is right for that kind of an answer? How can we be more, I guess, conscientious? Well, I mean, the, mo the thing that comes to mind for me is to read broadly. Um, that would be one. And, and what I think you, when I say read broadly, that doesn't mean that you read like, you know, Ann Coulter's book and like Rachel Maddow's book or whatever. You don't yeah. find the two extremes because right. what, what that will actually do is, is produced, produce cynicism. You say, oh, well, who can know? You know, I mean, this person making these arguments, this person making these, and they're often like pulling from the same studies or stats or whatever. And so you, you just, you just throw it all away. But I do think within the realm of kind of rational, thoughtful voices, people who have shown over the course of their career to be thoughtful and for the most part nonpartisan, I would collect those voices from the left of center to the right of center and I would read those people and probably add a, a heavy helping of people who naturally don't align with with your views yeah. you know i read i read a lot of evangelical publish i mean i guess technically by the definition i'd be evangelical but i'm if you've ever read anything i've written i'm definitely left to of the center but um i tried you know i did an interview this week with nancy piercy i mean she's talking about why like uh she's telling stories of of gay people who are now married with children you know and um married to women with children um, if that was, should have been assumed. Anyway, uh, if you read, she's, she's like, you know, she's like to the right of uh, Ronald Reagan, right? right? And so she's, she's very conservative, but I found her to be really interesting. And that those things are important, not just for my, my tribe and my readers, but for me in terms of my own formation. I'm, I'm constantly steeping myself in the opinions of people who disagree with me. And what it also does too is it, humanizes people right. because like what I've realized is just like um, Republicans have demonized feminists or gay people or immigrants because of the lack of disconnection. That's a problem that happens on the left too. So like a Jerry Falwell Jr., as much as it may like make hair stand up on somebody's neck is like, probably wants to be a good dad, a good husband, and probably really does yeah. believe that he's in some way pleasing God. Um, he's kind of like us at some level. And you have to spend time with folks like that to realize that their humanity is, is, is equal to your humanity and to see them as a person, not as a soundbite, not as an avatar. And so that to me is really, really important. Yeah, I've spent time interviewing a, a bunch of different voter groups for this upcoming season. I've, I've interviewed eight Trump voters um, and uh, among those groups. And, man, such a common refrain was just like, I'm not a racist. Like, I'm not automatically a racist. Um, and when people start a conversation that way, 
it's it's very it's a big turnoff. Yeah, and let me and let me say this too. What I don't want to be is um, an enabler. So like some people are racist, sure, and some people are just really nasty human beings. And like we should be okay with saying that. I'm not saying totally. like no matter what you believe or who you are, you're Richard Spencer. Like I just wanna I just wanna see you as a human being. I, I should be able to say to somebody like some the wires are are fritzing somewhere. Like that's not you shouldn't treat people like that. There's something really evil here, or there's something really wrong here. That's true. But but I will say within range, there are people out there that I think what we try to do is take anyone, even a degree from us. Like if you've ever heard of the concept of like outgroup homogeneity bias, like the notion that like in in our tribe, we're like, oh yeah, I'm not like that evangelical, right? We see all of the textures so we can differentiate you from the hipster evangelical, from the Hillsongi evangelical, from the sojourners evangelical, from the, right? We have all of these different kind of like textures and we see them all. And so people outside of the group just say evangelicals, like it's monolithic. Right. And you're like, I couldn't be further from Robert Jeffress. But we do the same thing. So when we try to talk about Catholics or secular humanists or whatever, we create massive buckets at monolithic labels for other groups where we refuse to see all of the variation and nuance within those groups. So we, we, we see the group that we're a part of differently than other groups. We so give I, our that's group. important to say Richard Spencer is not Jerry Falwell, is not Donald Trump, is not... They're all of these people, there's nuance to each of them, and within range, many of these people are probably better human beings than I think they are. Yeah. Okay, I want to ask you about Alan Jacobs because it's along this line. So you interviewed Alan Jacobs. He's a professor at Baylor, and he just put out a book called How to Think. Uh, and I, I think uh, I have it on my shelf. It was a Christmas gift from my mother. Thank you, Mom. Haven't read it yet. But that that thing, the outgroup homogeneity bias, those are the type of um, sort of empirically found phenomena that he is addressing in his book, but he's addressing it to, to uh, not to a Christian audience, but he's coming from a Christian perspective. Um, you, what, first of all, what did you take away from that interview with him? Uh, what are the kinds of things that, that he and people of his ilk are getting at that can help us on the ground level? Well, having not seen this interview in quite some time, uh, I think the one big thing that sticks out to me is just that not, well, you know, if you remember Mark Knoll wrote years and years ago about the scandal of the evangelical mind, yeah. and the opening line is very famous that the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not one, right? And, and it was this really powerful academic work that um, exposed the kind of anti-intellectualism that was so rampant in evangelicalism at that time, American evangelicalism at that time. And um, I think what I wanted to do with Alan was to do a little bit of a check-in and say, how, how do, are Christians good thinkers? Yeah. And why or why not? And for, for Alan to say, well, Christians are not actually, by and large, good thinkers. And again, we're using Christian in a giant, um, in a big bucket, generalizing way. But uh, for him to say, particularly evangelicals, um, are not by and large good good thinkers, and here's why. I thought that was really helpful, and I think that if you if you're a Christian who believes that loving God with your mind is as important as loving God with your heart, 
um, it's important to constantly, just like you would constantly kind of check in through uh, contemplative practices or prayer, you would check in on your own heart. You should check in on your mind, the state of your mind, and whether you're really loving God well intellectually. And for me, that was really the purpose of why I did that interview to begin with. That's awesome. He talked about social media in that interview that you did with him. Um, and I have a quote from him. He says, let's not kid ourselves. The entire architecture of every social media service militates relentlessly against thinking. I think what he means is like all the algorithms that are basically built in to get you to continue scrolling. The kind of eyeball and finger control these sites thrive on is wholly incompatible with thinking. My first question is, do you agree with that assessment? Well, I would say, first of all, I don't disagree because generally I think it's uh, not a good idea to disagree with Alan Jacobs. <laughs> You've learned, he's, yeah. he's a smart guy. Uh, but I would say, I, I think seriously that social media can be. And I'm not one of those guys that's, that always pivots like, it's neutral, it's just how you use it. Um, but like, actually I think in the case of social media, there are fundamental mechanisms that drive social media that um, uh, I would say are, are opposed to deep thought, right? Not just the, the, the lengths are limited, but, you know, I often, I always tell people that, that I coach, writers that I coach, I always say emotion creates a motion. Like if you want somebody to do something, in social media's case, click, or scroll, or comment, or whatever, reply. You want them, social media doesn't want you to observe. They want you to engage, to right? To feel, yeah. Right? And so in order to do that, they have to create emotion. And the types of emotion, emotional triggers that social media often capitalize on, some of them are okay, like curiosity. You know, like this, this speech the three-year-old gave for his kindergarten graduation will make you cry till you throw up, right? It's like, what, what did he say? What did he say? And it's like, you know, curiosity, Take right? Take some notes, yeah. So there's always like the curiosity or the knowledge gap, we call it, when you're like crafting a headline or something that's clickable. You tell them you know something that they wanna know, but you don't tell them. That's not all, all that harmless, or humor, like what I sure. just said, that's like humor. That can be really good. But the primary emotions that have come to sort of dominate are things like fear, uh, rage, uh, anxiety, these are the kinds of, they, 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 they create these constant um, feelings and kind of you live with it when you're not on Twitter. You have this kind of low grade, whichever ones you gravitate toward, you have a low grade fear or rage or anxiety about the world. And that to me I think is not healthy because what, what it does is, is it clouds uh, the intellect. It keeps us from thinking rationally, logically, in some ways empathetically, because we're just, we're in a, a reactive mode. And I mean, I'm at, I'm like the worst on Twitter. If you've ever followed me on Twitter, it's like, I'm just like a total dick. And so, you I'm, do not so practice I'm not saying I'm the preaching. model is what I'm saying. I'm just saying, I'm just recognizing the pitfalls of the medium. And I would say that social media is not built to nurture wisdom. Like, that should go without saying. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like none of us question uh, parents who would want their children hanging out with kids that are not, like, using drugs and stealing things. And yet, if I go on Twitter for 45 minutes and I'm surrounding myself with outrage, 
I'm surprised that mm -hmm. I will feel outraged at the end of it, but, right? But, but social media can be great as an aggregate of gateways. So if you take people who are thoughtful, who are posting, um, who are using their social media as a gateway to longer form deep thought pieces, it can be great. Sure. Because you can scan it quickly. You don't have to go out and buy a magazine and flip like 47 pages to see 17 articles. You can see 17 articles in 17 seconds. And so if you're picking people that you know and trust and allowing them a place to share content and you, you're using Twitter only as, or Instagram or whatever, only as a sorting mechanism, that can be helpful. It can be, but it, I mean, that's hard for me. I know myself, I get so much more pleasure out of following the people who give an extreme and funny and biting version of something I already believe or think. And if I could limit myself to just philosophy professors on Twitter, that would be great, but I can't. I'm not well, able to do it. Well, and, there's, and there is something really good about pure entertainment. The problem is, is when you are, you don't stop to notice how you're using it. So all of a sudden you go to it and you're like, oh, isn't this funny entertainment? And you end up pissed. And you're like, you, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't like, you know, watch a comedy and then something about the satire like makes you angry because you know, like, I'm watching a comedy. It's great. But Twitter and, and all social media kind of blurs the lines right. between information and commentary and opinion and all of that stuff blurs. And so you can start in one frame of mind in entertainment, for example, and you can just end up triggering all kinds of other things. So there has to be an intention, intentionality and an awareness with how you're consuming social media. Speaking of aggregators, one of the tools that I have found helpful, and I don't know if you have found helpful, but sometime in the last year, the New York Times launched a feature called Good Writing from the Left, Right, and Center, or something like that. It's like writing across the spectrum, and if an event happens, they will curate articles that are well-written from different points of view um, and so that's just a piece of practical advice. If you're looking for some way to do this, I should have looked up what it's actually called before I told you, but uh, have, you, have you used that or any, do you use anything no. like that or any of those websites? No, but I like the idea. Yeah, it's really great. I don't want to talk about Roy Moore. Let's talk about Roy Moore. Um, <laughs> okay, so Roy Moore is interesting. I just want to have an open discussion about this. So Roy Moore was, of course... Horrific to some of us watching because it was like, okay, uh, let's, let's, for the sake of argument, say that ethically Donald Trump and Roy Moore are on roughly similar ground. I think you could certainly argue about that. But let's just say they're both similarly suspect. It's one thing to say we have to vote for Donald Trump because at, what's at stake is the presidency. I mean, it's like judges. It's so much stuff. Like, in this case, we're going to go with the flawed candidate because... There's just such a thing. But for Roy Moore, it's one Senate seat. It's one Senate seat. Uh, and it, you'd think that you'd be able to say, that's not worth it. So that's the scary part. On the other side, evangelicals who were polled who did not live in Alabama, right? Non-Alabamian evangelicals were on the whole very, very much disliked Roy Moore. I think it was like 30% approval rate or something like that. And I don't have the poll in front of me. So there were signs of, signs of both, but of course within the state, he did very well with evangelicals. Um, what do you think, you know, the, everybody sort of has a feeling of what the Trump election shows us. What do you think the Moore election shows us? Well, for one thing, I would say beware 
um, rage from external parties. In other words, like 81% of even white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. That's a number we've seen lots of times. So like the notion that like evangelicals outside of Alabama were outraged at Roy Moore. You know, there's this, um, there's a there's a, a word in sociology, a phrase called acceptability or a social acceptability bias, right? In other words, like if you ask me, uh, do I believe in gay marriage? I, I might tell you what I think will make me socially acceptable, whether or not it actually reflects what I really believe. Right? Now, if my child is gay, now you're going to see what I really believe. So somebody from Montana telling me, like, ain't Roy Moore just the worst? It's like, yep, yeah, that doesn't actually tell me what you think. What we know is about half a second ago, eight out of ten of you voted for a guy with similar character. And somebody, by the way, who on tape admitted to things that were just as bad or worse as the things that Roy Moore did and voted for him. Anyway, what we saw was, is when it came down to it, the people who mattered, which were the people in Alabama, they voted for Roy Moore basically on par with Donald Trump. The only difference is, it, it, Roy Moore in some ways is almost worse. And the reason is, is because of the main difference between the two. It's not, it's not a character difference, it's a chronological difference. Now, there are people who, with Donald Trump, the, 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 the rationalization that was happening among many evangelicals was, you know, he just acts like this, but as soon as he becomes president, he's going to like get things in line and succeed. He knows how to succeed. And he even said this, I'm going to be so presidential, it's going to blow your mind. We've seen, like, boy, has he been, he's been presidential. So, so what people have seen is, is to quote Maya Angelou, if somebody shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Or to quote Michelle Obama, that the presidency doesn't change who you are, it reveals who you are. And the same is true for all of politics. It's not like you can say, yeah, but that was Roy Moore 10 years ago. Or that was Jeff Sessions in the 70s. Or what you start to see is, is that people, people display a pattern. And I think if Donald Trump has taught us anything, it's when somebody shows you who how they are, believe them. We're learning there are people who voted for Donald Trump that are saying, you know what, I didn't really get what I, I wanted. I, I voted for him on potential. I thought he would change his ways, and now I'm realizing that was kind of dumb. And they've learned from those mistakes. What we've, you, you would hope that they've learned from those mistakes. What we learned in Alabama is, is that evangelicals haven't learned from their mistakes that, at least in the case of the Deep South, have doubled down on supporting candidates who offer them access, who offer them power, who offer them influence, regardless of their character, regardless of whether they reflect values of justice and equality. And that is, I think, incredibly disconcerting considering the amount of disproportionate power that white evangelicals hold in the United States. I have a bit more nuanced or centrist maybe view on that than you that I don't have time to get into. See my entire podcast. I, I, would, love, I would love to know this. I mean, I think one really interesting thing is, is after the allegations broke, evangelicals were polled and white evangelicals in Alabama were more likely to support Roy Moore after the allegations. Yeah, it's than tribalism, before. yeah. And part of that is is 
Um, there are all kinds of defense mechanisms. The fake news uh, defense mechanism. I mean, if you if you're accused by something of if you're accused of something by the Washington Post, I'm less likely to believe it than if my neighbor told me. Right. right? If I'm super conservative evangelical, these are all disconcerting. But the fact that there could be credible allegations of sexual abuse of minors, and it would make you more likely to vote for a candidate as a group in Alabama, I'm ha I have trouble really wrapping my head around that. I know we just started drawing blood. It's unfortunate to stop I know. right now. You guys, you guys <laughs> in, the, in future panels, I hope. Where's Preston? Is Preston hobbling around here somewhere? I expect him to throw some shade. I'll throw it back at him. <laughs> He's around here somewhere. I love Preston, by the way. You guys can get in touch with Jonathan Merritt on Twitter, Jonathan Merritt, M-E-R-R-I-T-T. -T. He also has his own website, jonathanmerritt.com. And as I said earlier, season two, coming up soon here. Look for that Ellen episode, and then March 19th, we'll have the first episode of the new season. You can support this show on Patreon if you want to, patreon.com slash depolarize or depolarizepodcast.com and click the button that says become a patron. Looking forward to sharing these new episodes with you guys. Really, I can't wait. I've been working pretty much nonstop on this stuff for about six months now, and I'm so excited. <laughs>